0: Um, The first question I wanted to ask you was uh, what your aim was when you sat down to write uh, 2052.
1: 67 years old, I've spent 40 years of my life working in vain for sustainability, and I finally decided that it would be interesting to find out whether I really needed to be continually worrying about the future as I have over the last 40 years, because I know only... 20 to 25 years left to live Uh, and so I thought it would be interesting to try to find out what will actually happen over those 40 years and that is of course in contrast with my academic uh, discipline which is systems analysis where you of course know that you cannot make forecasts all you can do is to make scenario analysis basically say that If man does like this, then such will happen. Or if man does like this, then that will happen. Or you can work as an ideologue. You can push a certain solution. You can say that we need to do such and such in order to avoid climate catastrophe. But I decided that for my own sake, it would be interesting at least uh, to know what will happen in sufficient detail for me to believe in it so that I could then decide whether I needed to continue to be worrying about the future. And that was the very clear ambition 18 months ago. And uh, now the book exists, and it gives me, in many ways, great peace of mind because I now, you know, I believe in the forecast I've given there and... uh, it in many ways makes life much much simpler i think for a person who has been worrying about unsustainability for such a long time
0: so for people who, who haven't read the book yet um can you tell us about 2052 what's it what, what's it going to be like
1: uh, it, it is a book that describes as detailed as i can you know what will happen Now, until 2052, so it's a story about world developments over the next 40 years, I ended up splitting the world in five regions. So I looked at the U.S., I looked at China, I looked at the rest of the industrial world, I looked at the big emerging economies, and I looked at the rest of the world, five entities. And my world forecast is the sum of the forecasts. For each of those five regions. At a very aggregate level, what the the forecast says is that uh, humanity will, you know, uh, try very hard to to achieve economic growth, you know, further income growth over the next 40 years. Uh, Humanity will continue to try to to put in place or get access to sufficient energy to run those economies. We will, you know, continue to work hard on energy efficiency matters, you know, trying to use our energy uh, more efficiently. We will, of course, be talking a lot about uh, climate emissions, climate gas emissions. We will be, to some extent, reducing those per unit of energy used. But in sum, uh, my book says, you know, we will not do enough of those things so that by 2052, we will have plus two degrees centigrade over uh, pre-industrial times, which is, you know, the the generally agreed danger threshold, you know, when the temperature is two degrees higher than what it was up to 1750, uh, science basically says that we are on the threshold of starting, uh, you know, to do real damage to the world. And then if I run my models a little further in 2080, the temperature will be plus 3 degrees centigrade over pre-industrial times. And and that is, in my mind, enough to to trigger self-reinforcing climate change, you know, basically the melting of the tundra, which then emits a lot of methane, which then makes it much much warmer so in many ways it's a sad story uh, the next 40 years because uh, it is a story of humanity not rising to the occasion on the other hand many of the critics of, of the book basically says that uh, it is a positive story and it's a soothing story because I don't uh, predict any crisis, any real crisis, food crisis or oil crisis or whatever uh, in the, within the next 40 years. And my critics are saying that a book like this should not be written because by saying that there will not be a real crisis over the next 40 years, uh, I further demotivate uh, what little response could otherwise have uh, occurred.
0: One of the, uh, in, in the trailer for a forthcoming film called "The Last Call," you say, "Democracy will not solve these problems we need a paradigm shift in terms of governance." What do you mean by that? Is democracy compatible with solving this crisis and if not, what do you propose in its place
1: So uh, when you get down to it, the reason why pe- why we you know humanity will not The climate problem over the next forty years is not that this is technically impossible. Uh, To the contrary, it's technically quite simple. You know, we already know how to build well-insulate homes, and we do know how to make electric cars, and we do know how to make solar panels and windmills instead of coal-fired utilities. So the technologies exist, and the reason why we won't do much enough, you know, by 2052, it's not that it is wildly expensive to do so. It costs probably 1% to 2% of the GDP, which basically means that you and I will be as rich in July 2020 as we would otherwise have been in January 2020. You know, this is postponing gratification by half a year to a year you know is all what it would have taken to solve uh, the climate problem so the reason why uh, you can then ask the question why won't we do anything when the technologies are there and the costs of applying them are are fairly limited and the answer is that uh, society modern society as we know it is extremely short term it means that it is finely tuned to maximize, maximize short-term benefits, at, in some cases at the cost of, of, of future uh, problems. And, and the two major institutions of today is, of course, democracy on one side and capitalism on the other side. Most people do accept that capitalism is short-term. You know, most people who know knows that uh, capitalism allocates c- capital to projects that have the highest uh, net return and and uh, the discount rate used you know the weight put on future uh, things is, is the weight is very low the discount rate is very high it means that capitalists don't allocate money to projects that have most of the benefits 20 years down the line and the costs this year they allocate to things that where the benefits come in four years uh, and and less. Then you could say that democracy ought to be able to regulate uh, capitalism in such a way that, from the point of view of the capitalists, it's most profitable to do the right thing, you know, what is socially beneficial as opposed to what is profitable. And uh, yes, this is true. And this is, of course, what we're trying when we're trying to introduce a price on carbon. Is uh, on, on the, a price on climate gas emissions, it basically means that one is trying to make it less profitable to run coal fired power plants and more profitable to to run windmills and, and things like this. But there you see uh, democracy, the short term nature of democracy uh, emerges uh, as the real problem because when you try to pass legislation which makes fuel or power More expensive in the short term. Most people don't vote for those uh, politicians. And so it is, in a democratic society, very difficult to get the frame conditions around business decisions. be done uh, in a different manner the technology exists the costs are low but because of the short term nature of democracy and capitalism it won't be done this is my main message
0: so but is that do you do you have any sense of what uh, long term interest to democracy might look like or is the only way we can avert climate change by kind of introducing a martial law or something
1: Uh, 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 I already gave the answer, you know, what does it take in order to make capitalist society allocate capital to what society needs as opposed to what is profitable? And that is basically a change in some of the prices that are uh, surrounding uh, uh, business. And the most important one is, of course, the price. On climate gas emissions, if one could get that one up to 10 times what it is currently in the European market, that really would help a lot. Or if one could manage to pass a carbon tax uh, on coal, oil and gas, that would uh, matter a lot and would, in my book, essentially solve the problem in time. Uh, But how in the world do you then make democratic society Has such legislation. That's, of course, the big uh, deal. And uh, you should then start by asking, is it at all conceivable that that democratic society delegates decision authority to someone over or, you know, beyond them, you know, in the short term and in order to achieve long-term good? And uh, the answer is yes. The dictators in, in Rome were appointed for a limited period of time, you know, to be a, able to pass rapid uh, decisions, technocratic decisions, when, when uh, Rome was challenged. Uh, another m- more interesting modern example is, of course, the Central Bank, which is an institution invented by democratic society, where... Uh, Parliament basically delegates to someone else to pass decisions on how uh, the size of the money supply, you know, how much money to print. Uh, and uh, many democratic societies have chosen to do so, you know, to, to do, uh, run monetary policy at arm's length. Uh, my dream would be that uh, we did the same thing with climate gas emission rights, that uh, there was a global central bank for for climate gas emissions that actually allocated to each nation, you know, the number of, of emission rights that they had to operate under. Uh, and uh, that would, in my mind, solve the problem. Then um, you can see, then, uh, you know, my critics would say that this is, of course, what we are doing in the, in the uh, United Nations negotiations, under the framework condition on climate change, and I will respond that, yes, this is true, and we have now seen the conversations going on for 20 years, and we have gotten close to nowhere in 20 years. And so, although the goal is the correct one, I am afraid that the 192 nations participating in those negotiations will not reach an agreement until it is too late
0: one of the assumptions that you that, that you put in the book you say you say i believe a number the number of jobs will keep up with the workforce most of the time and in most places just as in the past but given the unfolding euro crisis and with 50% youth unemployment in spain for example now do you still hold to that
1: yes i do and and the reason is that uh, i am talking about the long run again that means From decade to decade, I'm not talking about month to month or quarter to quarter or half year to half year, and not year to year and not election to election. I'm speaking about 10 to 20 year horizon. So I basically believe that unemployment uh, will stay within reasonable levels when we're talking about the long run, 10 to 20 year horizon, simply because if unemployment gets too high, you'll get sufficient social unrest or or revolution and redistribution of opportunity. And I think that you already see the simplest examples of those evolving. Uh, You know, it's interesting for old people like me and and my my socioeconomic middle upper class uh, in the last 40 years, You know, we have taken it for granted that our pensions will be paid. And uh, interestingly, it looks as if those countries that have lent money to the United States and to to Greece and others also expect their money to be repaid. Uh, I asked the question in the book, you know, does that make sense at all, that an unemployed 28-year-old person, uh, you know, who has a hard time getting into a labor market and a hard time to find a place to book, to live which is even half as nice as that of his or her parents. Is there any reason in the world why they should be paying the pensions for their fat ass uh, parents or you know that they should repay the national debt run up during their parents uh, uh, happy life you know over the last uh, 15 to 20 years. And in my mind, when you look at this from the outside point of view i don 't see any reason whatsoever, and that is the beginning of the the redistribution that will take place you know when unemployment and and skewed distribution of benefits in in, in modern society gets too extreme
0: yeah, that was one of the things no. sorry, well, that was one of the things that, that came out really strongly for me was the whole the kind of intergenerational tension that you that, that yeah. you paint that will emerge, you know, how you argue that young people will increasingly kick against the poor deal they've been given with pensions, climate change, and austerity, and so on. I mean, how how do you see that playing out?
1: No, I, 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 I first of all, I think it's a very very important dimension to have around, you know, to keep that in mind and and, uh, and and secondly the question of how uh, the young are going to rebel against the old at this point in time and even more interestingly how future generations are going to rebel against our current lifestyles uh, i think are very interesting questions that uh, that one ought to try to respond to uh, concerning the young it seems to me that that uh, what you are seeing, you know, in in, in uh, South EU at this point in time, may be the type of thing. You know, basically that uh, they don't they decide against repaying the debt, and and uh, that is uh, and if if the uh, the person who owns the debt uh, don't go to war, which I don't think they will, you know. This basically will be a redistribution of wealth, you know, from those that formerly were wealthy to those that were, uh, you know, have the short end of the stick, basically. Uh, It's an interesting question whether this will happen in the United States, which is, of course, the country in the world where inequity has grown most dramatically over the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, at least the, the, the industrial country, which where inequity has grown the most dramatic. Still, of course, when you talk to young Americans, the idea of trying to create a revolution in order to to rebalance the uh, ownership in that nation, I don't. The, uh, it doesn't sound as if this is, is just around the corner. You know, that idea of rebellion or, or revolution is is very far off. Uh, American thinking, even you know, among the blue-collar people who have not had a race for the last thirty years.
0: Um, so the the transition movement, which we talked about at the beginning, there is is focused on an intentional localization as key part of the response to the threats you identify. And you write in the book uh, as an even at an even smaller scale, forward-thinking regions within some nations will increasingly focus on managing their inevitable degrowth. They will try to build regional resilience in the face of global economic unrest and dwindling access to cheap energy. And to do so, they will organise systems that rely on local food, local energy and programmes that strengthen regional and local economies. But why, why do you argue that that will, will be on an even smaller scale? Why do you think, What do you think will prevent this approach from scaling up, especially in the context you've just talked about of a whole generation of young people actively seeking different models?
1: Uh, I think the reason why I, uh, first of all, think that that's an important movement to follow and that, yes, there will be pockets where this thing happens. The reason why it won't happen large scale is that it hasn't happened large scale over the last 40 years where I've been following this quite closely. You know, when I started working on sustainability issues in 1972, or actually, in 1970, you know, the first thing that happened in the middle of 1970 was that the equivalent of the transition uh, movement, you know, popped up, called, you know, assembled around the Mother Earth News and other, you know, American uh, left-wing type or revolutionary type of, of magazines, and the enthusiasm was great, and uh, the, the number of followers stayed way well below one percent of the global uh, or the available population i later in the 1990s spent uh, a small decade of my life working full time for the world wildlife fund you know the 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 panda organization or wwf depending on on which uh, terminology you choose to use and again it was interesting to see you know how far you can run a big ngo But it did stagnate at roughly 5 million members. So again, it's 1% of the rich world population that are willing to pay uh, 25 pounds a year, you know, in order to support uh, uh, that type of very important idea, namely biodiversity uh, uh, conservation. So my main answer, and I apologize for this, is that I don't think that more than between 1 and 5 and possibly 10% of the rich world educated population will, you know, decide within the next 40 years to sacrifice something today in order to get a benefit for our grandchildren. And the, the basic, or my basic argument is based on observation of history. You know, I, I cannot see what will be different over the next 40 years uh, from over the last 40 years
0: and uh a while ago you, we uh, when i first got the book there was um there was a bit in it which i read which uh i found um very very provocative the bit where you talk about how one of your tips or one of your recommendations for people is that they shouldn't teach their children to love wilderness because there won't be any left and i i put that on my on transition culture as a kind of a provocation to see what people thought and uh, and it caused a lot of debate and so many of the people argued that surely the best way to teach young people to take care of the earth is by grounding them in wilderness. Uh, and also, you know, with, there's now this identified syndrome known as nature deficit disorder where young people who are, who are denied access to nature and to wilderness uh, sort of shut down on many levels and don't develop as well. Uh, surely if we want to have a generation that care about this planet enough to do the things that you set out in the book that we need to do uh, uh, denying them access to wilderness is 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 self-defeating
1: mm. yeah, it's, it's uh, you know that aspect I, i'm glad you pick up that aspect of the book because this is of course among the elements closest to my heart i have spent uh, a full 30 years of my life on the other on on the other side of what I'm uh, talking about now, basically believing that if we could just educate, you know, the young of seven, uh, 30 years ago, you know, when they came to power now, uh, you know, they would decide totally differently, and as voters they would also be much more in favor of green parties, parties that sacrifice. Uh, argue for sacrifice today in order to get a better world uh, for our grandchildren. And the sad fact is that, uh, that uh, I have then grown to, to implement environmental education in, in schools in the West, and we worked in WWF very hard to get hundreds of thousands of uh, environmentally oriented teachers educated in China and other places. And now I live in a stinking rich Norway, you know, which is rich beyond anything on the surface of the earth. Which had had free schooling for 50 years for 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 all levels, you know, from kindergarten to your PhD, uh, and uh, where democracy is working and has been working for 50 years, and still there is not, you know, a single tendency that there is a majority uh, of the voter that is in any way interested in, in sacrificing anything in the short term in order to, to help our children in the long term. So that's, that's my very pessimistic, you know, starting point. Then uh, you should you could say that, you know, it's an obligation of elderly gentlemen like myself not to say this, you know, because we should still hope that something would and become different over the next 40 years Uh, and i hope you are right but but uh, i wrote the book you know in order to find out how worried i needed to be and not for 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 other purposes Uh, so that uh, doesn't really uh, bother me much then to the concrete advice you know don't teach your children to of this with Ray K. Carson in the 1960s. Then I started working hard on these issues in the 70s. I worked very hard on the issues during my WWF lives in the the 1990s. Uh, And all the time, you know, the coral reefs get destroyed by tourists and bleaching and the forests are being cut, you know, at wild speed and faster and faster. Uh, The introduction of clear fellings, you know, are being done. Anything which is beautiful and natural, you know, is being attacked by the majority. And this is not capitalist society which is doing it. It's basically, you know, the forest owners. And in our country, there are tens and tens and tens of thousands of those who much prefer, you know, to have another hundred pounds in the bank than to have a good-looking old-growth forest standing next door. So the sadness... Which that I had, had have had to live through over the last 30 years because I see nature going faster and faster, I would not, I don't think my children deserve. And consequently, it's much better that they get to low computer games and virtual reality, which of which there will be a lot in the next 40 years, than try to love the untouched, quiet uh, surroundings, of so which there will be much less, sadly.
0: And... Uh Finally, you write uh, that your findings are bleak, but not as bleak as you had feared they might be. I wondered what, if any, grounds for optimism one might draw from the book. So if, if you were a Spanish teenager, for example, reading this book and already feeling that you don't have much of a future uh, with youth unemployment at 50% and the economy falling to bits, what might they take from this book that could motivate and inspire them, do you think?
1: I think they uh, could, and it's convenient that you are the interviewer, uh, I basically think that what they should do and what they can do is to take their future in their hands and then starting to build a sustainable society from scratch. And it isn't more complicated than if, you know, in... They have to adjust down, you know, several levels in, in, in uh, consumer goods for a while. But basically, it means start building your own home and build it in a way which doesn't require a lot of uh, energy. Then try to accelerate or further move you know, the the Spanish energy supply away from oil, coal, and gas and onto the windmills and the solar panels that are starting to to exist. Stop driving a car, stop going, you know, spending all your money on airplanes, etc. And try to create uh, an enjoyable local community just like your movement is trying to do. Uh, because uh, then you can ask the question, will this be enough, you know, if uh, the 10 percent uh, uh, unemployed chose to do so? The answer is probably not, because still climate change will occur. But the problem does not become critical, you know, for another generation or so. So in between, you know, there is a lot of hope and lot of opportunity residing in trying to make smaller communities that actually uh, find new ways. And and, uh, that's what is my recommendation. And uh, having now spoken about this book for of the order of six weeks since it came out, I've learned that I always end up now by saying what are the four things that people should do. And they should do the following. They should point one, have fewer children and particularly in the rich world, they should, you know, see to that the populations of the world decline dramatically rather than increasing. The second thing they should do is to stop using coal, oil and gas. You know, anything which uses this for heat or for, for electricity, you should stop doing. The third thing you should do is to try to uh, work for uh, a global redistribution, and that should be done in the sense that the rich world should build and pay for, you know, a low-carbon energy system in the third world. So basically, we should build the windmills and the solar panels and the hydro power uh, plants and the uh, carbon capture and storage for the poor world and give it to them, so they do not spend. You know, another generation building coal, oil, and gas fired utilities, which will then have to be uh, dismantled before we can go to the real thing. And then finally, the fourth thing, they should be noisily in favor of supranational institutions. You know, institutions that could temper the short-term nature of the nation-state. So it basically means go out and be strongly in favor of a very strong EU, you know, that could actually pass uh, environmental legislation, which is way more radical than, than the majority of each of the member states, or be in favor of a strong resolution in, in the Rio plus 20. Well, we know now that we didn't get that, but uh, in some way or the other try to get international agreements in place, which actually put constraints on what nations can do on the climate side. So these are the four things that that people uh, ought to do, while at the same time trying to build a local uh, sustainable community.